Hello there. This week, John Yeo shares about a book written by Eric Topol called Deep Medicine. It discusses the intersections of AI and medicine and how it could optimize processes. Follow us through this two-part discussion and summary of the book. What is up, John? Hey, How are you? Hi. Uh, I've been I've been doing quite well. Yeah. Uh, having a few uni orientations recently. Woohoo, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? Uh, okay. Uh, my uni is not starting anytime soon. Still like two more months. So I've been sort of uh, resting a lot at home since I ended my internship. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I thought, nice. I thought yeah, during my internship we had so little time, I, I thought I'd do so many things during my free time, but now I have so much free time, it's just like watching movies, uh Playing, playing court. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much doing no, but that, that's good though. I think I need to, uh, chill out before school starts. Like I need to actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't, I don't rest. feel that uh, guilty also because actually I always think about like in secondary sec four. I always thought to myself, oh, uh, everything will be good once you're twenty one. Then after army, like literally having a break in life. So I like, okay, I don't mind having a break in life. Or yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you want to talk about today? Okay. Uh, today I wanted to share one of the books that I've read recently. Uh, it's called Deep Medicine by Eric Topol. Uh, so basically, it's a book about how AI will transform how medicine and the healthcare industry will be working in the future. Wait, actually, how many yeah. pages is this book? It's seems, pretty thick. Yeah. <laughs> seems like a pretty thick book. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, it's quite dense. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's quite insightful in some portions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, uh, the book is about how it, it challenges the the notion that people have about AI that it would replace uh doctors and a lot of healthcare professions, and it kind of uh argues in the position of like saying AI would help and augment uh doctors' jobs in the future. So like AI will be helping us to become better doctors. And I think like the main the main idea that he's trying to put across is that AI would take over a lot of the administrative tasks that a lot of doctors are now very uh encumbered. Is that correct? I don't know. They're all very like preoccupied, like in data entry and all that stuff. So AI would be the one that would help them to enter all this data and the doctors can care more about the patient through that. Yeah. So it gives them like more overhead in like actually interacting with patients instead of uh being so focused on data entry and looking at the computer and all that stuff. Yeah. And not just uh for like uh patient consults. Uh AI would help in research because it can analyze big data and all that stuff. And yeah. it can also help like uh, make more accurate predictions about patient outcomes, uh, like how long they take to recover and even their lifespan. Yeah, stuff like that. So all these things will help like the hospitals uh, plan and uh, use their resources correctly, like, like optimization. Yeah, so it's pretty complicated stuff actually. <laughs> Yeah, actually, well, now that you mentioned the word optimization, I, I've been talking to like some sort of like seniors on like the what what to like look at when I'm looking at like research in math that kind of thing. Uh, I realized like even not not just in math but a lot in all aspects in life, like everything is sort of about optimization, like mm. how to make how do you do things faster and that kind of thing. Like even um, so this is very very side note, but even you know for example like Excel, you have your sort like, table that kind of thing from A to Z kind of thing. Yeah, even within um like this. Considering this, there's so many different ways you can sort something. So there's like merge sort, there's like 
quick sort. Uh, I don't really know too much about it, but I'm not sure if you come across this YouTube video where they just show like the, the like I'll, I'll say the I'll put a link later or something. But basically, this YouTube video that shows like uh, the height of some graph and they try to sort it. I it just it's one of those short YouTube videos that just popped out of my algorithm. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but I didn't realize <laughs> what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but essentially, even for sort of small tasks like just sorting a table from A to Z, right? There's uh, different ways to optimize it. Yeah, so that's basically a big summary of what this book is. Mm. Uh, so the way that uh, he writes this book is he first starts out by describing what the healthcare industry is. Um, he argues that it's a lot of uh, shallow medicine and that he means uh, we waste a lot of resources on over-testing and uh, excessive screening, Yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, then he explains a little bit about um how doctors make diagnosis, like how they how they conduct their diagnosis uh, of patients and how it could go wrong. Then he describes a bit of what AI is. So he goes through a lot of terms. He argues what uh their limitations are. Then after that, he he starts to be a bit more uh future thinking. <laughs> then he he looks at how it can be applied and how the future would be. Uh. So some examples is like how uh the hospital room might be obsolete in the future like apart from like the operating rooms or like the ICUs like the normal regular hospital room for like chronically ill people will be like replaced because of like surveillance and AI yeah that's just one example oh wait so he's saying that oh actually I didn't see at this point what wow, is actually quite impressive this is quite a bold statement to write in his book that means he's saying that people will just stay at home uh, instead of just staying at hospitals yeah as in no it's just like giving a glimpse of how of oh. one possible route that you can take yeah which I thought was quite interesting well actually yeah, I never thought that hospitals will stay consistent throughout the agencies people going there to stay there like to be taken care of like the what's it called like being watched if they're like very terminally ill yeah, yeah. Wow. okay maybe I'll go through the, the more important chapters yeah okay yeah so i initially i was a bit too ambitious i tried to <laughs> uh put a lot of information into this but i think i'll just go through what are the more uh salient points <laughs> yeah okay i want to start uh, with this quote that is quite nice yeah so over two thousand years ago hippocrates said it's more important to know what sort of person has a disease than to know what of what sort of disease a person has what the freak does that mean yeah. <laughs> no as in <laughs> <laughs> he's just emphasizing that it's more important to know the person instead of like like which one is belonging to the bigger set like so wait so what? his point is that uh, the diseases can affect different persons based on their biological build is it he's trying to get a, a more abstract point that we shouldn't kind of label people by their diseases but instead frame it as a how this person is tackling this particular disease like each person has different responses to diseases lah. I think that's what this quote is about <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's actually quite insightful. Freaking hip Yeah, okay. Let's briefly go like through chapter one. Okay, so yeah. chapter one uh, is the introduction to deep medicine. So in this chapter, the author talks about uh, the three components of deep medicine, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, so the first one is uh, deeply defining each individual. So this basically is like the collection of data, all possible data from an individual. So it says medical, social, behavioral, family histories all that stuff. Yeah, because this is important to have like continuous data. Yeah, then the second point is uh, deep learning, which is basically the research aspect of uh, AI. Yeah, then the last one is deep empathy. Uh, Yeah, I don't really know what he's trying to mean by deep empathy, la, but it's basically... <laughs> I think he's just trying to get the... Basically trying to emphasize how um empathy and the human touch is very important in the age of AI. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go on to the second chapter. So this one, he talks about shallow medicine, Uh, which is... 
basically like the current scene of like the healthcare industry, mostly in the US. Yeah, that's where the book is written. In. And then, um, so he starts off with like a statistic where one third of uh, medical operations are deemed unnecessary and a lot of uh, overused tests of like imaging studies are fairly innocuous conditions. So I think he means like people are over-testing because of like people are scared to make, they're scared to be deemed giving inadequate care. So basically this like is uh, related to the whole defensive medicine thing. I'm not sure if you are familiar with that. No, what is it? So basically like the current trend is that Doctors are practicing very, very defensively, meaning that they, they try and overprotect themselves by like testing people and patients for very, very like commonplace symptoms. So like a uh, headache or lower back pain. Then they'll send these people to like, take x-rays or like some imaging tests, which is a bit unnecessary. But they are like predisposed to take all these tests because they are scared if they don't do so they will get labeled as giving inadequate care. Yeah, then like they get into lawsuits or some stuff. But actually, okay, I mean, me me being a patient, I always thought, how how do doctors uh, get, because as a a doctor, most of the time, you're in solo, right? Like, not really assess what you're doing. Uh, So in a a sense, as a patient, my tendency is to just get as much, like if the doctor says what, then I just do what, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then, um, who, who is to criticize the doctor? Like, there isn't really a system to criticize the doctor. Like, oh, actually, you don't really need to do it, that kind of thing. I always thought like, uh, just monetary wise, right? Some of these X-rays or like these these procedures aren't cheap. But if the doctor says you need to do it, then like suddenly money is a problem. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I always thought like maybe that's sort of like a high a lack of a system to sort of criticize doctors on whether like there's a need to do all these procedures. But then again, having a procedure to go and criticize would be quite intimidating, I guess. Or oh yeah, oh, yeah. Hmm, I think. I read this, I don't know whether it's in this book or not, but some other doctor, he argued that in order to help everyone improve, they need they need this kind of systems uh, to get feedback. So essentially a grading system. La. Right, yeah. But I think I share you this idea, so, this idea of uh, having sort of like democratizing doctors, right? By, by putting a level field. But it's very different when you're criticizing like companies because it's not personal. Whatever you criticize doctors, right? It's like it becomes too personal, I think, because it's all individuals. Mm. Or maybe there's a system in place really. I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, maybe we're just not aware of it, yeah. la, but but there should be la, right. Mm. There should be a system where there should be there should be. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh he lists a few reasons why people uh have this fear of giving inadequate care. Not people, I mean doctors. Yeah. Uh so the first reason is called the therapeutic illusion. So this is where doctors overestimate the benefits of what they do. So in like this confirmation bias, they believe that the procedures and tests they order will have the benefit that they think the test is looking out for. Yeah. So like let's say if this guy suspects like this guy has a like a fracture or something, then like you would be more biased towards thinking that it's actually there. I think that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, then then okay. The second reason why he says this is the lack of any mechanism to affect change in physicians' behavior. So this is essentially uh why we need the grading system and the feedback. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure how true this is for like our local context, but yeah, like, I guess a feedback system is important. Yeah. Then after that, he goes on to um the topic of like e- electronic health records. Yeah. The thing about like electronic health records is that it's it usually like preoccupies a lot of time 
from the doctors. So I don't know if you uh, went to the GPs recently or yeah, however, they are always typing away on the the GP. Okay, uh, the system that they use, I think, is GP Connect. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then uh, so in the system, they use it to type out like their diagnosis and the um, the description of the patient, uh, taking like a history of the patient. Yeah. And most of them are always like looking at the computer, like most of the time. They really like stop and look at the patient. Then uh, sometimes they even ask like the patient to go outside of the room as they type the 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 record. So like it's a bit uh, it becomes a bit like impersonal. It's still like know? a physical limitation uh, that the doctors have. Of. Yeah, it's like they are forced to they are forced to multitask, and most of us wouldn't be great at multitasking uh, Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So because of like these records, then the the doctors spend a lot of time like on the computer. So there's no time with the like real communication and real interaction with the patient. Yeah. No, also, I, mean, I always thought that uh, using NLP and like, like for example, like a virtual Siri, like just to write notes for you. I thought that'd be helpful. But then I think we are not at a stage, we are as in like the computer science world. It's, it's not like in a stage where there's, they're able to make a, like a production or like a usable model that will be able to convert audio into text like very accurately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like very consistent, like very reliably, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's why we are like in a very long transition stage because we cannot implement these things so fast. Like our systems are developing, but they are not good enough to be used in production, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this okay, so this all leads to the the author saying that uh, patients exist in a world of insufficient data, insufficient time, insufficient context, and insufficient presence. Well, this guy likes his repetition, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he says all this uh, amounts to a world of shallow medicine. Yeah, I guess you get the point. Uh, it's like we are not very comprehensive because a lot of our data systems are not integrated and uh, a lot of... Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, the doctors don't don't actually reap the benefits of the e the electronic health records. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Like, yeah. Like while while some of this data or like tech is really there, they may not be like user re- user friendly or like for some reason doctors are not using it. Like, for example. Mm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure whether like <laughs> the records that we make in like our local context is like integrated or not. <laughs> Yeah, probably probably the government like those polyclinics are but other than that probably isn't the, the private ones aren't right yeah, yeah yeah but actually it just makes me very fascinated about even before like the all these use all, all these electronics right all those uh, how do you term them pre-electronic doctors <laughs> I guess how do they even function <laughs> eh? how do they even have a successful surgery like given such little data they you know right? yeah that's true Actually, that's quite amazing. Handwritten notes, ah. Uh. Yeah, freaking handwritten notes, yeah. Amazing, actually. Oh yeah, I had doctors. No lah, I mean they they still would they still would have like basic computers and stuff lah. It's just not so advanced. Yeah, yeah. No like, Even way before those, way before those computers were existing. The early doctors. The the yeah the real Sherlock Holmes doctors. Freaking. What is <laughs> Watson. Yeah, Watson. Doctor Watson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's quite a good summary of chapter two. Uh, but but that's kind of it really, right? Chapter two. Yeah, pretty much it. Okay. I guess we can move on. Chapter three talks about the system one and two thing. Actually, what is that? Uh? Okay, this is a whole chunk of text, but I think what the author was think writing about here is um. We think that very good like doctors would rely on system two thinking. Okay, so if yeah, so system two thinking is more deliberative and rational, but uh, system one is more is more intuitive. Yeah. So I think naturally you think that um okay what do you think do you think like better doctors rely more on like deliberative thinking or intuition I I 
I thought that it's really just based on the time. Like for example, it's emergency doctors, then it's probably system one. Like everything is like on the go. Then like, what is my intuition? I like, kind of thing. But more if it's yeah. not emergency, probably system two. Like. Unless you're telling me that not emergency as of you were system one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is that the case? <laughs> uh yeah la, I, I think you are right. It's like so if the major factor is time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, but this I think he presents a contrasting statistic. So he says that if the doctor uh thought of the diagnosis within five minutes of seeing a patient, the accuracy would was a stunning ninety eight percent. Okay, I don't know what the uh, the study group size is la, but we just assume that it's quite legit. It's equal, then la. uh without yeah then without having the diagnosis in mind uh within five minutes, then the accuracy was only twenty five percent. So actually, if the doctors rely more on system one thinking, they will be more accurate. Oh my god. So if I, if I have cancer, I probably should go see the ER. The, the <laughs> <laughs> i probably get cured. <laughs> oh no. Actually, yeah, that's quite, that's a quite surprising data or statistic. Yeah. Huh. He, maybe he's trying to say that intuitively we are better, more, we have a better assessment rather than us overthinking it like, or the doctors overthinking it. Yeah, I think so. Huh. Like, okay, so... What I thought of initially is that it's the opposite of this statistic is that if you had more time to think about the problem, you come up with a better diagnosis. But then here he says that we cannot really supplement system one with system two thinking. So like having more time and going into a more, a deeper analysis doesn't make us more accurate, which I find is a bit weird. Actually on on this topic, I'm pretty sure I've heard this 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 thing before, la, but I never fully appreciate it. You know how like um I think some math book or something, or like some econ no, reading some econs book. Then essentially what you're saying is that a lot of us uh, have uh, intuition that is can't be explained for. Similar to how these AI stuff are uh like can't really explain it, but then there's some intuition behind it. La. So like you know how um let's say you're talking to a baseball player, right? The baseball player probably didn't know all these different differential equations and like the velocity and that kind of thing. But if you throw a baseball at him at like freaking like 70 km per hour, that kind of thing, he's probably able to hit it very accurately. And yeah. and that's quite fascinating, right? So I didn't really, I mean, this is a story that we probably, uh, like a scenario we probably hear before. Like our body is just like able to understand the math or the or the trajectory without, without inherently or like thinking about it, right? I never fully appreciated it until I started coding because uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways when I learned from coding, right, is that um everything is intentionally there on like there isn't something that you can't not intentionally but it's there yeah okay you know i mean right so I, I now i fully appreciate like what the shit there our body is able to unintentionally uh or at least not not say unintentionally but intuitively uh, appreciate all this uh velocity and calculations in our head without us even knowing about it that is if, if you if you tell it to a coder that's probably quite amazing i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know what i mean right so yeah, maybe it's something. So maybe he's just maybe the author trying to what's the author's name? Eric Eric Topol. Eric Topol. Like, yeah. Maybe he's just trying to give some statistics that the the brain is more powerful than we think. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Yeah. Actually, but what was his point on this system one? Uh. So he after saying that uh system one and system two like after saying that we cannot supplement system one with system two thinking, he then says that uh these things are not the only variables. So he says one is the lack of emphasis on diagnostic skills in medical education. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I don't have any comment on that. Lah, so. <laughs> okay, but the way he reasons it out makes sense. So he says that um, if you don't get feedback during like your foundational like learning years, then your confidence grows faster than your accuracy. So if you are overconfident, then uh, yeah, you definitely make a bit more wrong diagnosis. Yeah. 
Yeah, I still I still think personally that one of the biggest uh setbacks of medicine is that there isn't a use of all these like like the using the human brain as a memory isn't really the most efficient or quote unquote optimized way to do things. I think yeah, like based on all those uh although you may build the doctor's intuition, which which here it says is it has a better accuracy in, in the long run, right? I mean like when like I mean building I mean for those for those ninety five percent for those system one to get ninety five percent accurate probably because of years of studying the the thing and then like just it becomes an intuition uh, but yeah 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 but having an intuition for everything uh because given the how many years studying medicine for six years you probably only learn about a few like few thousand diseases but then it's probably like a few ten thousand of diseases in the world so, mm. yeah yeah mm. oh yeah so yeah talking about the availability bias yeah that doctors would recall only the diseases that are more memorable or salient to them at that point of time yeah oh okay yeah that's true so, yeah actually there's, there's a bit like exams though. like when you study for bio you will sort of only remember the, the things that you study about yeah exactly right. like when the question actually if you go into a bio exam not thinking about what you study the question can be answered like in a lot of different ways i, I think yeah yeah correct correct whatever but you study you put the exam yeah. you force fit it into the question yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you know that there'll only be a certain answer to it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. So that's some some of all the. I mean, this sums up the chapter three, I think. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I think one like related point is like, have you do you know about the book Noise? No. What's it? Is okay. I haven't read it either, but um, it's about how a lot of random, a lot of random things can like impact our decisions without us knowing it. Nice. Oh, for example? Oh, it's so by the same, I guess in this, it's by the same guy, Kahneman. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman. So, uh, I guess, like, maybe in this context, if this uh, doctor had a, had a patient who turned out to be positive for a certain disease, um, but in actual, like, fact, this disease is actually a bit rare, then in all the future cases that he faces uh, that are, like, mildly related, he will be a lot more cautious, even though it's a bit irrational. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, I see. Wait, is it like, for example, if I almost got into a car accident, then I will start driving much more carefully, like, for example, at a certain road? Yeah, I mean, yeah, stuff like that. La. Yeah. Wait, I'm just looking at this Daniel Kahneman guy. He's so weird. He's quite interesting. He's a psychologist, but he has a Nobel Prize in Econs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, man. <laughs> Top legend. He's <laughs> a, it's a lad. Yeah. Oh, but his book. Yeah, it, I see the popular book, The Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Yeah, I read about him. But uh, I think you in terms of noise, yeah, I think I think one of the main issues of like you you come across this this phrase or this job called data scientist, right? Yeah. Actually, one of the main one of the main issues in building all these uh like machine learning models or like the neural network models which we're, we're gonna talk about later, right? Or the quote unquote AI yeah. is that a lot of our data yeah. is very noisy in in that um it isn't so easy until you say like oh I have an AI or this AI will solve issues. Because a lot of times the input data, like I think as mentioned in chapter two or one, right? That chapter two, a lot of these records aren't even in really medicine, for example, a lot of these records aren't uh continuous or they aren't like using the same unit or like it rests more detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of different noises, uh, yeah. So then it, it might cause a lot of issues. Oh yeah, yeah, correct. Actually that's one of the, the major limitations of yeah, like medical data now. Like a lot of it is very noisy and doesn't really like produce a positive output mm. because yeah right like we need to clean a lot of the data to make it like usable in the first place yeah yeah actually yeah that, that's 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 the main part of what a data scientist does so a lot of things just cleaning because even within like the data level like um 
how would I put it? There's a lot of dilemmas. For example, um, let's say I'm tracking, let's say I'm given okay for like econs, like for bank wise, right? Let's say I'm given two data points. One is like the earnings per month, and then one is the number of months or uh yeah, for example. So let's say one company hasn't even gone to one month, so there'll be zero months, right? So then if I'm finding the factor which is the ratio of earnings per month, then this guy's ratio will be off the charts because it's something divided by zero. So then for like different yeah. factors, they have to consider like different things. Yeah. So even within even if you have a perfect data set or like perfect perfect data, there'll still be a lot of issues with it. Yeah. So a lot of noise, I guess. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there's this one other uh concept that is quite interesting. This also like bias of some sort. So uh he calls this uh rule-based thinking. So essentially like um it's just talking about how we classify patients. So the example he uses is um uh when we are diagnosing like heart disease in patients, um people assume that uh, like if we delineate like lines of age, so we say like the risk of uh, heart disease uh becomes significant over the age of 40, then only then would you uh suspect that this guy has a heart attack. So let's say if a patient who comes in when he's uh age 39, then like uh people may not suspect there's a heart disease because of this rule that uh it only becomes significant over 40. But then in reality, like it's not uh it's not a discontinuous set. Like so a, yeah, a patient who is 39. Like he doesn't have that much lower risk of heart disease than someone that's forty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's not it's not discrete. Yeah, that's what I meant. Hmm. Another off tangent topic, but I think sound related is that uh I I had a, I had some dinner with some uh church member who was like uh, not okay I won't say old dude but he, like seventy plus year old dude. Okay, I guess kind of older. But basically he's he's been in the elderly ministry. Then he's doing like he's focusing mainly on the dementia people in my church. And one thing I realized was right like um. I, I heard this quote from some other guy, some other professor, then he was telling me that actually a lot of those, you see those Nobel Prize winners, right, in all those fields, actually they're all really quite old. Eh. They're all like 70, 80 years old. So he was telling me that actually these people who are who are in academia, like at least, they all peak uh, when they're that old. But then in contrast, oh. yeah, but then in contrast to normal civilians, right, and they don't have to be like civilians that are unsuccessful. Eh. So, um, yeah, like they could be very well to do like um, in whatever industry they're doing, but um, at least in my church, some of them are a bit more successful. But no matter how successful they are, right, when they age, let's say by the time they are like 65, 70, that kind of thing, there's a very there's a very high level of a high percentage of people with dementia. Mm. Yeah. So I was just thinking that actually maybe to some extent, uh keeping your brain active because your brain is a degenerative thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, maybe there's a big part in it. But yeah, I, I was always just fascinated how actually to some extent that's quite true. All those normal price winners are all like really very old. And not only not only to be able to not have dementia, but they are peaking at the age. Eh? That means their brain is like super active. Eh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's why they encourage all the uh, seniors to play like Sudoku and work their minds regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It's, it's all about that. I know the phrase, uh, what's it called? Uh, the neurons that fire together, what uh, link together or something. So, yeah. so like if you practice something more and more, then like your, your brain like retains the level of functioning. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, sorry, I go back to my point on the... So, so like one of the things that he was sharing that why even though these people are so successful and then they have an onset of the, this dementia, right? Was that because naturally as you... I think also I, I feel it this way. As, as we age, right? Our physical... Ability is like drastically declined since we are in secondary school, right? Like you, we can't we can't just play like football for like forty minutes straight and then like go to class. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a bit much. Yeah. But then, uh, as you age, your mental strength also decreases a lot. So then, because they are 
and particularly so because they are successful people so they are very like critical on themselves or like very hard on like achieving goals but then once you're like 60 or like 60 plus 60 plus unless you're like some academic person who is like consist- consistently like studying uh, you will just not be able to reach that level already and because they are so high achieving they become demoralized yeah, yeah. and then because of that they just stop uh, or feel less incentivized to study long or like to read or that kind of thing yeah mm. which yeah, I realize is yeah, sort of like because uh, we are I would say we are both sort of uh, high achieving or like striving to do things I realize actually there's one thing to take into account eh. like by the time we are old right we can't just because we are slower and then just give up because if you do that right that's the that's the paved road to become dementia to get dementia yeah it's the slippery slope yeah yeah okay yeah nice 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 uh, tangent yeah